Hello, I'm Pete Raby, CEO of the X4 Group, and you are listening to the Leadership Learns podcast. I'm a big believer, like many of you, that good leadership takes a hunger to learn and reflect. And when we open up about our own experiences, we give others permission to do the same. The Leadership Learns podcast brings you inspiring stories from diverse global leaders from a range of different organizations and industries on how they innovate and improve to become the best possible leader. With me today is Richard Aidey, CEO of Tor Technologies. Richard is an expert business leader with over 30 years engineering experience at prestigious companies such as British Airways and BAE. He's also worked for numerous international automotive brands, most notably at Tesla's Gigafactory in electric vehicle technology. If that wasn't enough, he has 10 years of PwC project management experience, two engineering degrees, and an MBA from London Business School behind him. Richard, welcome. Thanks for being with me. And how are you? Yeah. Hi, Peter. Yeah, I'm good. You know, there's a lot going on, isn't there? And judging where to go next for every business and everybody, both in life and in business, is really tricky. But yeah, I'm enjoying myself. I'm really enjoying myself. That's good. I think the the basic human things that we talk about a lot here is as long as the vast majority of your role can be stuff that you're enjoying doing, spending your working life doing lots of things that you don't enjoy isn't really the way it should be, is it? So it's good good to hear that the things you do at the moment are, are enjoyable things. Yeah. I mean, I, do, I find that's quite important with staff as well, actually. You know, I always take a view on them and I think if they're not enjoying themselves and they're not doing interesting stuff, and I feel like everybody who's involved with tour, you know, they're gaining massively. I, I feel at the stage in the future when I've retired and I look back on these people, they'll all be doing interesting things because they're all learning at a massive rate. Um, I think it's always a nice thing to talk about. One of the only times probably in human history that we all experienced the same thing at the same time, and that was the global pandemic, especially in the business world that we serve within the technology and life sciences community. Your business is a very young one. I'm looking forward to talking more about touring in, in, in the coming minutes. But when this all kicked off, where was the business right then? Was it panic stations? Was it you know change the direction that we're moving in completely? How, how did that all look at the time? I mean, I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. So events, you kind of roll with them, don't you? And yeah, when it kicked off, I don't think I thought or anybody thought it would be the length of time it's become. And I remember commuting into London. So we decided we made the first strategic decision we made was not to put the engineers in California, that we'd put them in the UK. And that's because of the stability of the staff and the quality in the UK is really good. So we did that. And then we wanted to know where. And London, central London seemed great. And actually, we're based in Somerset House, which is even more fantastic. So I was commuting in, but the only person on the train, because we made the decision to keep the engineering team together. You can't run an engineering team uh, away from, from base. And that was quite tricky. And then at the same time, I'd involved a supplier that I knew in, in Hong Kong and China. And the same issue started to occur that we couldn't then get to see them. So there was a lot of interesting dynamics going on. And then I got COVID. <laughs> yeah. And typically it seems to come at the most inappropriate and awkward of times. Uh, I, I don't know how your experience was, was with it, but um, I think I'd love to, I think it's important to context set in these conversations. The reality of doing what you're doing and why you're doing it now is something I want to get onto. But if you wouldn't mind just giving the listeners an overview of Tor Technologies, when it came about into being, what it's trying to do and, and where it's at in its journey right now. So I was in the States on some other business and I know some of the guys that funded Tesla and Bird and some of the big fast moving high tech companies. And they asked me if I'd go up to the Gigafactory and I thought this is a really interesting activity. I'll tell you one of the things that comes out of it for me is I, I can remember in the evenings I'd walk out of the factory and I'd look back at this investment. So this was in 2018, 2017. And 
you know, the amount of money that had gone into that activity over a long period of time. And then you come back to the UK and you realise, you know, we're talking about gigafactories now and we're talking about electric vehicles. And, but actually, we're so far behind that the ability to get up to speed is really tricky. But it gave me a great insight into electric vehicles. And then I was um, in San Francisco. Bird had just launched these dockless rental scooters. They were the first to do it. They'd done it originally in L.A., and I saw what they were doing, and I thought, this is really interesting stuff. Although I might have disagreed with the approach, I thought the product was amazing. And the enjoyment of – you smile every time you get on an electric scooter. So I went down, and, and they'd all these guys had also invested in Bird uh, in Santa Monica in L.A. So I went down, and I met up with Travis van der Zanden, who – was ex-Uber um, and set this business up. And it was really interesting stuff. So I came back to the UK and it was just about Christmas. I was at a company Christmas party and I met my co-founder, Carson Brown, who's this 30-year-old cool dude, knows micromobility. And I wouldn't have done it without him. But on the basis that I had the business experience and he had the product and the brand experience, I thought it was really an opportunity. So that's really how it started. But even off the back of that, there's quite a few avenues that I want to uh, chew more on, uh, Richard, because it's certainly some really interesting content and stuff that I know that people listening in are, are going to enjoy hearing about as well. But let's just give the context of how you've got where you are. The first job out of education was with British Aerospace, as, um, as, as, as it was and is, of course. I think we could probably talk about this for about half an hour by itself, but what's the journey been like from being a, a BAE into what you're doing now? So I've done startups before and I've worked for big corporates like British Airways, British Aerospace, you know, Kibbs and Lyburn, as you were saying, PwC. And I think it's a temperament, a type of person that kind of gets to where I am. And that's because it's the point you made about you don't feel you're comfortable in a single location doing a single thing. You're always looking around. And I think that was my nature. So within a big corporate, I learned a lot because you move around an organisation. And then in startups, you learn a very specific but long view of, of what's going on within a sector. So the combination is a really, I find really useful. And it means that when you do a startup, you understand finance, you understand product, you understand marketing, you understand online marketing. You know, so I think that's that's what you get out of an eclectic background. My parents were very good together, but my dad never finished anything. And my mother used to criticise him for it. So I have that real need to finish. And I think you can look at people and we can talk about different people I've met over the years and things. But I see that as a real underlying issue or opportunity or why people are the way they are. Do you think it's important to understand yourself like that, Richard? Because it's a out of all the conversations we've had so far, it isn't an area that's come up so far. I'm, I'm delighted that it has. Maybe it's a, the face-to-face element which is uh, enabling us to talk about it. But knowing where you come from and why you're wired as you are, do you think that's an important part of being content with what you're doing career-wise? Well, I don't know if it makes you any more content, actually. You know, I think contentment is a different kind of issue. I think there's a lot of people that don't ever recognise why they behave in the way they are. They're very, very successful people. They really don't want to admit it at all. And they, they, they're in an extreme position. But for the rest of us, I think there's a large portion of the population that never really talks about why they behave in the way they behave. Interesting. Um, you mentioned that you've been involved with startups before. Bit of a big overview question, but are there any two or three big standout things from I know that there's a lot of people that are listening to this that are technically minded. They might be doing the hands-on, in-the-mud type of work now that have always loved the thought of it and or one day I might come across a product or I might be in a position to want to do that myself. Any biggest learns that you've taken during those years of being involved with startups? Whoa, big learns from startups. It's always much harder than you ever imagine. <laughs> it's much easier to take a salary. And sometimes I meet people and I talk to them and they do a bit of due diligence or they from their salary position they say well you've done that or, or you know why would you do this and you think hang on 
this is tough stuff. This is very tough stuff. So I think the first thing I'd say is you've got to be really confident about what you're doing. I think secondly, if you haven't got all the skills, you've got to find a partner yeah. because you can't learn these skills on the fly. You just can't do it. If you don't know finance, you have a problem. In day one, you have a problem. If you don't know marketing, there's a difficulty there. And it's interesting when you look at successful people, quite often there's someone else in there. You know, they portray it as one person, but quite often there's another person involved. So, so yeah, those are really key parts of it. Don't think you can do it on your own. Let's go back and talk about decision with Tor then. You mentioned you'd seen Bird, you'd seen a product, you liked it. You mentioned the feeling of just having that nice exhilaration of what being on an electric vehicle, electric scooter kind of feels like. Now, your business is an incredibly interesting one because rather than putting words in your mouth, it would be great to hear about Tor's target market. You've mentioned China already. So we're already looking at, although the business is a very new one, a very much a global picture. Some people, of course, when they already see businesses as established as Bird and others in the market as well. It's one of those industries that has absolutely skyrocketed in recent years. Why did you think, do you know what, that there's a part of this that I think we can do better than what already exists? I never believed that Bird, Lime, Voy, any of these companies were really going to be where the market was or is. And that's because well, they're there because there's a lot of money that's gone into these companies. And I saw the original projections for Bird. And, you know, if you've run scooters on Santa Monica Beach and you've shown a growth curve that goes up like that, private equity or VCs will invest in that. That's what they invest in. But it never they never look at the core underlying – or it's a bit unfair to say they never look at. But that if you do look at that in detail and the granularity of it, then you start to think, well, hang on. Is that product the right product? And in addition, is it sold in the right way? So I would firstly say to you, you just described a series of rental brands. You haven't described an ownership brand. Yeah. And the first thing I, I thought was that this is an ownership market. As bicycles are ownership, 95% of bicycles are owned. So why wouldn't 95% of scooters be owned? And the only reason they're not is because the money that shareholders have invested is subsidizing the rides that are going on at the moment. And so the first thing to say is, it's a ownership market is my view. So you've got to go back and say when you start a business, what are your strategic points? And the first is that if you believe that ownership will be, be where electric scooters are, then that's where you invest your time and money. The second thing is that they're all riding on the pavements and things. And, you know, everyone gets excited and the actually rightly, the Royal Institute of the Blind say, you know, this is dangerous. Of course it's dangerous. There needs enforcement. But in principle, those scooters will end up being on the road. They have to be on the road. It's a safety issue. So if you believe it's ownership and you believe safety is a key issue, then you design a scooter that is safe on road and suitable for ownership. And suitable for ownership means it's portable because when you get to your office, it's not like a bird or a lion where you dump it somewhere. You actually take it into your office. And when you get home, you want to take it into your house. And so that you've got to have that combination of roadworthiness and portability. And that's never been done before. Yeah, interesting. So I get completely now the area of the market that you feel like, well, this is a sector that's really emerging. But right now, you're predicting there's going to be a market shift in relation to where consumers are going to want that product to be. So I get the gap in the market that, that, that feels like it exists. Absolutely. You you touched upon the point there. The UK seems to me behind, miles behind European countries and the states in its views and legislation behind what electric scooters can do and it baffles me that it does because it's an incredibly clean way of getting around it's 
great because you're out in the fresh air, so it doesn't have all the issues with COVID and being in cramped spaces that tubes and trains do, but yet the UK's miles behind. You've thought about this idea, Richard. What was the next part of the process for you guys deciding what markets you wanted to be part of? So when we started this, firstly, we didn't have COVID. And secondly, the government had indicated that there would be legalisation. We were involved in the consultations and you could see that there was an opportunity. And my assumption was that they would learn from what had happened in the States. You know, I saw what happened in San Francisco. It was a mess. It was carnage. There was a whole industry about the down and out taking, because of course they were standard scooters, taking bits out of them and selling them or throwing them in the river. And so I felt that um, the UK would say, well, we'll legalise, we'll understand what the issues have been. The same thing happened in Paris, in Barcelona. But instead of doing that, they said, oh, we'll do some trials, some dockless rental trials. And even then it was like, well, hang on, the legislation is all wrong for you to do that. So they then produced some very quasi, what's called (laughs) secondary legislation, which meant that they could run these trials. But it still didn't solve the problem. So all they did was, instead of going forwards, they went backwards. But it meant that we all felt comfortable that it was okay because there were trials going on. But actually, the rest of the world had got on with things. And the only reason the UK got into this position was some very old legislation. You know, we have a legislation that goes back to the 1860s, which part of it says if you, if you, have, you need pedals and you've got to pedal a vehicle at five miles an hour because then it, that's why electric bikes are allowed. If you can't do that, so if you don't have pedals, it's a motorbike. So the UK is the only country that has that situation. Right. And that's primary legislation. And that's the bit that I expected to be changed. Of course, they didn't announce that. They announced these trials because you're not really learning anything. I mean, they'll pretend and they'll produce, they would produce some information. But that, it's taken, it's, well, they've just announced it wasn't in the Queen's speech. They're going to run it another year mm. and then they'll just carry on rolling it. They won't make a decision on this because it's tricky. It's politically tricky. So we didn't expect that. We expected legislation to change and it hasn't changed. And then you get into a position where you say, well, do we launch in the UK and just say to hell with it? But that's damaging to the brand. And we haven't talked about branding because that's a really big part of where this whole thing goes. So then we're left. We're still running COVID. We're still running issues out of China. And you can't launch in your home market. (laughs) So Just a few obstacles. Yeah, 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 exactly, (laughs) exactly. But that's why I say to the team, you know, that's what makes this interesting. And, you know, some people look at this and if it's successful, they'll say bloody typical, typical situation, you know, makes loads of money out of it or whatever. And if we fail, they'll say, I told you so, you know, it was always too complicated. You can't win in this situation. But we made the strategic decision to move operations, sales operations to California. And that has some positives as well. And these things always have positives because the funding position in California is completely different to the funding position in the UK. I'm really looking forward to going on and speaking about that, Richard, because I think it will be very interesting to a lot of people. A lot of the guests that have had on so far, if you're in big business, it's a, it's, a, it's a different kettle of fish. But I think a lot of people think, well, the world ends in terms of investment with home money, UK money. UK markets. And actually, the reality was in, in our earlier conversation, I really enjoyed and what I want to share it with the listeners of, okay, when you're thinking about as a startup business, what are your routes for funding and how do you know what's the right things for you? So we'll get onto that if, if, if we may in a little bit. But you touched upon it there. I think that kind of setup where you can't operate in your home market, you can't make the products in your home market, and all of those complicated factors <laughs> will feel bloody daunting for a lot of people. And we think, blimey, I wouldn't want to go... You know, I just wouldn't know, even know where to start. And it feels like there's a yeah. lot of risk attached. What's made you want to pick up that mantle, Richard? Do you, like, you're an engineer by nature. Do you think it's that's the very essence of the challenge that you enjoy? Am I putting words in your mouth? Where does it come from from you? 
I think I'm bored. I think I'm a pretty good manager. I think I understand people. I understand the motivation of people. I think that's quite important as well. I think I'm a pretty good strategist. Yeah, you know, I might have not predicted what government was going to do, but I can predict the longer term. Uh, private cars are coming out of cities. Electrification is going to occur. You know, it doesn't really matter whether I'm right or wrong about that, whether it's dockless rental or whether it's ownership, because the proportion of the market will be ownership. So, you know, there's that strategic understanding as well. If I'm honest, I don't think I est- – the, the amount of times I've done business and I still, you know, get enthusiastic and start. I didn't recognise the level of complexity that would occur, both in terms of market opportunity and change and the things that are going on here, and also in terms of technically doing the product. Pre-COVID, post-COVID, the world's a very different place for a number of areas, good and bad, of course. Have there been any challenges that have been unique since COVID kicked off that you weren't facing before? Well, I think running two engineering teams, one in the UK and one in China, is is one. You know, one of the things we, we might talk about is the funding issue and what's called the runway, which is the amount of money you've got before you either get your next funding round or you go EBIT positive or whatever. But when you start to move out your development time, you need more funding, you've got to raise, and you can only raise at a certain value. And your values are at major threshold points in a business. They are, you've designed the product, you've done your first pre-production product and then you're shipping and selling and only at those times you get those step changes in value so you can get yourself in a very tricky position on keeping that runway long long enough to not feel that every day you're just sort of fighting the financials the market therefore at the moment is the usa you get manufacturing china you've got two engineering teams i'd imagine there must be some fairly unique challenges that exist by having that kind of setup richard what are the what are the most prominent challenges for you as a leader in a technology business with that setup right now so culturally it means that running those two teams in line and making sure you know everybody understands what's going on and you progress quickly is really quite quite difficult I think raising in California, actually raising California is a breath of fresh air in comparison with the UK. I mean, you were talking about this business of of UK. One of the problems with the lack of regulation in the UK is you get into a meeting and somebody, a VC, will say, well, I didn't think they were legal. And you think, well, hang on, we're not designing a product just for the UK. You can't spend the amount of money that we're spending on a product (laughs) and think it's just UK centric. Um, So and then you get to and then they'll get to, well, we need we need 100,000 before VCs invest. A number of times I've heard it. We need 100,000 per month of turnover and then we'll come in. And you think, hang on, this is a product development opportunity. You're buying into yeah. the work, the invested work that's been done to this point. You, you either buy into it or you don't. And you get to California and they say, you say, well, what about the due diligence? They say, well, actually, you know, we're going to check that you're honest. We're going to do checks on you. But we believe in the product. We're just going to make the investment. And that's a massively different behaviour. So... For, for those people listening that might have been through it and have always had UK-related funding uh, methods before and people that are going into technology engineering business for the first time thinking, right, a life cycle connected with developing a product and what, what the different periods and times that you're going to go and start raising some funds, UK markets, foreign markets, you know, you're, you're an experienced person. How do you go through finding out where is going to be the best way to do your to, to do your fundraising? So um, the easiest way for me to make money is to work for a VC and become a, an executive chairman, you know, because the infrastructure is in place and you don't have to do anything more than just make some good, sensible, strategic decisions. That's a relatively easy thing to do for a business. When you have to cover the whole ground, it's just incredibly uh, tricky to work it out. On the funding side, 
that's quite a quite an interesting one. So the UK is very good up to a certain point. You know, you, EIS was a really clever manoeuvre, enterprise investment schemes, because high net worth individuals could invest, they could take a risk, they got a very good return out of it. And that's always been very good. But that sort of tops out. And then these VCs come in and that gap is really, really tricky to, to resolve. So we did it um, by founders funding, first of all, and then all credit to Rishi Sunak, he introduced the um, Future Fund, yeah. which was a, a convertible loan backed equivalent to any another investor. We did that. And then we did EIS. And now we're at that stage of having to do the next one. A couple of the guests that have come on the podcast this year have talked about how I don't think American investment and American private equity is something that gets spoken about enough. The mm. appetite in lots of areas for investment right now We've seen what the economy has done since the good interjections from governments and bits and pieces and the appetite for people to really make the most of, in many industries, very healthy market conditions. But when you're a business owner, you've gone through those, you know, you've you, you've done the early bit and you've gone through those phases that you mentioned. When you're like, right, this is the next phase and we need to have a bigger injection of cash. The, 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 what's worked so far isn't the next step. You have still got UK money. You've got US money. You've got no doubt money that you could try and get from elsewhere. You know, how can other leaders listening to this think, right, I haven't looked at American money. How do, where do I even start? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a worldwide market, actually, funding. One of the things I would say is that you need warm contacts. I don't believe in this. We, we tried it and, you know, you send out, you know, hundreds of emails or you do it on LinkedIn or whatever. If they don't know who you are, they just don't entertain you. So you've got to have a contact. So if you don't have contact, it's very, very tricky. And you can work contact. You know someone who knows someone who knows somebody. As long as you can get to be in front of people and you can then create a credible argument. I mean, I'm not saying that Californian VC or American VC money is completely different, but it's a very different temperament. I mean, the UK is very rubbing your hands. Oh, that's very tricky to do. So oh, we don't take risk. Yeah. You know, and, and, and because the market's been so good, Private money has really found it very easy to invest. They haven't had to make difficult decisions. I think the California culture and the American culture, certainly the West Coast culture, is very different. It's very much more about being entrepreneurial. And so that's a much more attractive opportunity. What have been the biggest learns from raising money in the state so far, Richard? I'm sure there'll be a, one or two you might be able to share, some that you might not be able to, but one or two you might be able to share. Yeah, so um, they have um, an investment process where they take – uh, debt um, and it's convertible debt but it's not like a, in the UK we know it's a convertible loan note but this is a very standard simple document as soon as that comes into the UK it gets caught up in the UK UK legal system that's very tricky so generally if you can put the entity into the states then that's a much easier way of doing it if not you spend much more time on legals than you would otherwise with a UK registered company mm. one of the things I want to get start talking about now is leadership lessons you've worked for some incredibly large companies before is there anything that you know that you've taken from working with these businesses that stands you in good stead when you're actually doing a startup or are they so so different that actually very little applies no i think well obviously a training in in, in you know in the 80s a, a graduate apprenticeship with british aerospace was a fantastic opportunity to see a lot of a business so that in itself was was quite something i think you always learn I would. I, it comes back to the point about always looking ahead to what you're thinking you're doing and where you're going and where the business is going. A lot of people run their job in a very short view of what they're doing and where they're going. And that's actually not good for the job. It's not good for their management position or anything like that. Operationally, you learn a lot about business and what to do. Mm. And in terms of the leader that you try and be, 
you, you mentioned a couple of big names today. You mentioned one of the, the founders of Uber. You mentioned that you've been in, a, in, in one of the leaders that gets probably the most amount of coverage out there at the moment, and Elon Musk's Tesla. What have you seen in these leaders and what are the biggest takeaways that you've seen with some of these leaders of why they're able to do what they do? What does great leadership look like in technology, in, in, in engineering? Great leadership. I don't know what great leadership really means. I mean, it means there's been some luck. It means there's been some obsessiveness. It means there's been some very intelligent thinking. Um, so it's a combination of all those things. Yeah. We discussed uh, Tesla and the Gigafactory, and I was working there. And, you know, it was a tricky time. At that point with the Model 3, the S was a success. The X was a, it was a, wasn't a great success. The 3 was coming along. But getting that 3 out, because that was the volume car opportunity, and that's where the value was going to come out of the business. And I think Elon had put automated that factory to it because it's in the Sierra Nevada, there weren't that many people, so he'd over-automated the factory. And but he had the confidence to do it. Anyway, I, I was there and I was helping kind of strip it back to a stage where, you know, it would be a sensible producer and getting starting to get the units out the door. And um one day the the I walk into a room and there is Elon Musk in front of me. And it's an interesting experience because I wouldn't say there's an arrogance. They're, 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 outwardly, there's a confidence in, in a person like that. And it's partly from their position. And it's partly from the things they've done. But there's also, you can see, even in a person like that, you can see uh, um, an oddity of behavior or difference of behavior, which means that they are successful. That confidence to, I mean, some of the statements that he's made are unbelievable. Astonishing. Astonishing. Yeah. But to have that ability is, 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 is a really interesting balance of behaviors. And you can only say, I remember, I remember coming back to the UK and I went to a dinner with a lot of senior uh, UK business people. And the cynicism about Elon, you know, I told this story of a meeting, I had a half hour interview with him. And, you know, the question wasn't, what's he really like? The questions were things like, yeah, he's ridiculous. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And and that, that view we have in the UK is really tricky to move away from, that view of knocking success and looking at the weakness and not the, not the clever bits. Mm. You know, with him, I mean, you know, SpaceX, Hyperloop. I mean, Tesla, it's, um, it's amazing. The, the, the word that jumped out to me during that description is, is authentic. The bit that I'm always really surprised about also is how if someone does things their own way, why is it up for others to have an issue with that? I mean, if you, if yeah. you go back to that, I mean, it's a pretty... It's a pretty crazy video when you think about it, but those early Microsoft chaps doing their dance on the stage. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever, ever seen that video, but it's one worth looking up. But these were extremely technically gifted chaps creating a product that they believed in totally and was absolutely unique and, and brand new to the market. And they were being authentic. And I think... I agree with you. I think the Britishness has many, many, many positivities, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but the, maybe the cynical nature perhaps isn't always one of them because the reality is, yeah, some of Musk's quotes are, are almost unreal to read. Yeah. But the one thing I don't think anyone could accuse him of is being fake. Like yeah. he does the way that he wants to do things his way all the time. And, and and actually some of, as you say, Bezos to Musk to others, to, to Richard Branson uh, coming on these shores, uh, they do things in their own way. And surely is it not about leadership, not trying to apologize for trying to do things or be a certain person, but a little bit, the combination of things that you said there, as long as you're doing things from an authentic position, yeah. isn't that what really matters? But I mean, that's a, a whole debate for another time, Richard. You mentioned um, you mentioned something before that, that, that struck out as well. You mentioned strategy. 
Mm. Now, one of the things that we failed at <laughs> for 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 way way more many years than I than I wish we did was that we we had three of us that were founders. And all of us ran with this kind of co-founder and director title, largely because we'd also hated in our industry in particular, seeing these one and two man bands where someone called themselves a CEO. So their business sounded bigger than it was, right? That's the reason that sadly in some industries, that's why people do it. But then I realized that it actually had quite a handbrake on the business because it meant that the three of us weren't doing dedicated roles with dedicated accountability that would allow us to have thrived on much earlier than, than we would have done before. Now, when you are new in a business, being there, being present and and, and looking after all the things that a, a startup business needs, I actually found thinking strategically a very, very tough thing because you're so obsessed with the here and now and getting to that next one month deadline or next three month deadline that you're aiming for. How do you make sure that strategic thinking and strategic step back and thought is part of your is part of your role richard so i think strategy in certain types of businesses has different momentum and timing when you're looking at a, a hardware business you have to be thinking two years out three years out you have to do that um, it's quite tricky um, because and that's because of the momentum of a business and about how long it takes on the investment cycle and i think you can be quite you can be strategic mm. one can be strategic mm. doing what i'm doing it's easy to know what's going to happen. It's very difficult to know when it's going to happen. And you could say a classic example is deregulation in the UK. But you could equally say the change in cities to being to taking out the private car, how quickly that will occur, um, how, how, how much enforcement will occur in terms of getting scooters off pavements, because we talked about them going onto roads. So it's easy to kind of, well, it's not easy, but if you're if you've got a, if you're reasonably worldly, if you had a lot of experience, you can and you're as old as I am, you can kind of see where things are going. How quickly they get there is another matter, and that can be really dangerous for a business because you can assume it's going to happen quickly. It doesn't happen quickly, and you come back to the whole runway problem and you know investment cycles and things like that. You mentioned a couple of things there before that up until the last probably few weeks have been a complete alien to me. You mentioned there your co-founder that you you, you started tour with. Um, you mentioned marketing as an example as well. How do you go about making sure that you're not having to be too reactive whilst not having people in roles that a, a, a startup business simply doesn't need in the early days? How, how do you go about that? It's tricky, isn't it? And sometimes you make mistakes. I mean, I think you need people that are pretty self-sufficient. They have to be pretty confident. They have to be work, able to work in their own space. I think that's really important at management level. And I'd probably say that key hires in management is is really important. I mean, yeah, you mentioned Carson. I mean, Carson is a fantastic brand ambassador, you know, and at the same time, he's technically hugely competent, you know, far more competent than I am. You know, I mean, I might be an experienced engineer, but his grasp of electric vehicle technology is just phenomenal. And then you get into other areas. I mean, we've just recruited a chief technical officer, you know, fantastic. That knowledge in that area, but the ability to be comfortable in it, and, and that's why we do quite a lot of interviewing. We don't just, you know, take someone on the fly. We all meet them and see what they've got to say. And then you start to realise the personality. And I think you do end up building a company and a team around the leader as a personality. And because there's two of us, it's a, probably a broader one. I mean, I actually mm. realised that it's more difficult for me to do the recruitment now because of my age and my experience. Whereas Carson, I trust Carson's judgment much more. I wouldn't necessarily say he's right always about the time of a recruitment, but he certainly knows the people. I think um, what I'm looking for when I'm recruiting, I said about self-sufficiency. Um, if I'm honest, startups are a risky business. I don't recruit people that have 
large mortgages and three children and their hand to mouth because you just can't be in this business. And it's not just because I would feel responsible. It's also because I'm not sure that they can focus. Mm. If they've got, you know, that need to, um, you know, that worry, well, you've got to be able to be comfortable enough in your own skin to be able to do that. And these younger guys are like that. You know, I don't feel any concern about them. And those people, actually, we've got an interesting mix. We've got a group of very mature, experienced people. And we've got this sparkling young group as well. And actually, I found myself wondering sometimes about decisions, whether I was just being too conservative. And interestingly, when we recruited this CTO, he's in his mid to early 40s and he bridges that gap nicely. So I find myself now not deferring to, but almost checking what his view is because I feel he's nicely between the two. Nice. Yeah, well, you, you mentioned it before, Richard, and it, it really struck with me during the course of this conversation. It's about balance. There'll be some people listening that are very early on in their leadership career. And obviously, this is a podcast all about leadership learning. And there'll be some people that, um, like yourself, have got a lot of experience under the belt. Are there things that you wish you'd have known earlier about leadership, Richard, that you could impart with the listeners today? Or is that one of those two tricky questions that you want to come back to a little bit later? <laughs> <laughs> uh, about leadership. I think if you're overly confident and you don't listen, that's a really tricky one. So I think reading people is important, but I think, and sometimes you can be under a lot of pressure and you don't really want to have to listen to somebody. And so I think taking the time to listen to people, that's the kind of thing yeah, that, that think... whole team building is all about communication. Cause you can start to get people that really, you don't realize are struggling or worrying or whatever it might be. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think both of those things are absolutely massive. I think, we try and preach it a lot. We had a really good offsite day last like last week where we were talking about a longer term aim. And and fundamentally it does boil down to I'm a big fan of simplicity as well. And I said that we were a bunch of people that have got faith in themselves and have got confidence, as long as that is completely matched by the appetite to learn and the humbleness to be able to want to learn and listen. Let's talk about brand because um I think that in the last few years that word has been said and uh, written about more than any other time in history. What importance do you put on that phrase brand? What does it mean to you? And what are some of the, the vital elements that you try and do with Tor uh, Technologies in relation to it? But, so what I'd say is there are no brands in the electric scooter marketplace at the moment. And remarkably, there was a company called Boosted, which invented the electric skateboard. They started in there. There's a, a company in the States called Unagi, but nothing really. And because the Chinese have dominated it and they're not terribly interested in brand or after-sales service, mm. it's just not happened. So, so brand is important. And then how do you do brand? You've got to work out, you've got to have somebody good. And the guy running our brand, I think I really trust. And he, not just because I think he understands it, but he knows who to use. So once you build the product and, you know, you, the product has to be distinctive. There's, I don't think you can brand the same product as everybody else. I just think you go nowhere. You spend a lot of money on brand and you, yeah. you're no different. You have to have a distinctive product and then you have to position your brand. And in fact, the guys are in the States uh, over the weekend. They got back on Monday evening and were in the office Tuesday morning and they were traveling from San Francisco to LA taking shots. And they were saying that they're the, it's, they believe they're the first shots of an electric scooter that actually look good, you know, because mm. you don't see them. You see images of scooters chucked in places. You and, and the guys that are even trying to do it within brand aren't doing it properly. So it's about understanding where your positioning is, having the opportunity, if it's a crowded market, you can't do it, but the opportunity to be very early into that market is huge. Um, the other thing that, uh, to wrap up before we get on to a couple of more lighthearted questions, um, 
Richard, we're, we're talking mid to late November in 2021. Um, like all the things, the Christmas period's coming up. What are the biggest challenges and priorities for you as a leader in, in, in Tower Technologies over the, over, over the coming months? I think we work our team too hard. They really work far too hard and they're in the office all the time. And, and actually, Carson is, you know, he's very passionate and therefore expects everyone to be passionate. And that's fantastic and startups are like that. But I think you've got to get balance in there. You've really got to uh, understand that they shouldn't be in the office all the time because you get, you get to the stage where you just lose productivity out mm, of them. Absolutely. And, and I wonder, I mean, I look at Google and people like that. You know, I guess if you've got very high margin businesses, you can afford to have this idea that they spend all their lives in the office but we're not in that position so you've got to you've got to have balance in the work it's it's, it's a great point and actually we you know we've we, we've ourselves had a big challenge of making sure people are taking holiday mm. now it whether or not it's because we had uh, a succession of months that people were forced at home missed the interaction but felt like their careers weren't leaping forward at the at the pace that they were and i know when we started our business i we you know we didn't have an office we had to start it from home in our in our flats at the time I really, really hated working from home. I'm a, I'm a people person that really thrives off the energy of others and I've, I've learned the value of having the occasional step back day where I can look at things with a wider perspective and a bit of time where no one's walking to my, into my office to have a chat. But I love being around people. And I know that a lot of our guys, because they almost feel like they're trying to make up for lost time, are working crazy hours, working weekends sometimes, and they are going full tilt. And it really is taking some interjection for me say, oi, 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 when is your next week off, please? You need to go yeah. and lie on a beach somewhere and really take it out. It's so tough to pour water on the natural enthusiasm that people have within businesses. And if you've got people working hard, generally it means that they're happy and enjoying what they do. Are there any particular techniques or methods that you're going to try and make to make sure that people have that balance, Richard? Because it is, it is one that I think a lot of leaders are facing right now. Interesting enough, I think I'm probably naturally lazy in the sense that I kind of... <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with that, having a look at your background. <laughs> well, but I think that I know when to stop. And I think I've always known when to stop. So I find myself looking at what's going on and saying, actually, you should, you should slow down, you should slow down. But I, you know, this is a startup business and I'm not sure whether that balance and that, i guess that comes to balance between carson's position and my position but i feel mine is naturally more empathetic to that um it's a bit hard on carson to be fair but that's that's the way i'd see it the balance provides a level of of sense in there mm, absolutely it'd be good to ask you a question of a person that's done multiple startups um richard can you think back and is there one single point of you think the biggest risk that you've taken in your career and whether or not you'd have done it differently uh, having having done it all over again I'm not sure I'm, a, and this might be surprising, risk is how one perceives it. And I'm not sure I perceive myself as a high risk taker. What I, the risks I take, I never, I never bet the bank on it. I'd never bet my house on it. And, and that's very tricky because, of course, I've had the opportunity. I've raised my money and I've got money and I can afford to do these things. But that's really dangerous. And so for me, what I see as risky what I don't see as risky, other people that I know that live near me would think is incredibly risky. And equally, when I look at the behaviours that we've talked about, people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and people, I find theirs hugely risky. You know, <laughs> So um, I think risk is how you perceive it, really. Absolutely. Do I have a particular, the most risky thing I've done? I don't think I have. I don't think at any point. I've been very lucky. You know, I worked for PwC in um in, in California, I mean, that, that's a, you know, that's, you make your opportunities. I think it's more about making opportunities and, and you get out of that. And therefore, you know, you get out of that huge benefit 
And some people would say even going to California would be a risk. Some people just wouldn't want to go and work out there. But, you know, in the mid-80s, it was a hugely interesting time. You're an extremely high-energy person, and I enjoy talking to people that have got high energy because I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on myself, Richard. Do you feel completely and utterly aware of what creates that energy and what creates that fire? Do you know what gets you out of bed in the morning now, Richard? So I had a spell where I was sort of easing off, and I was training hard. So I started doing triathlons and racing triathlons. And... It was a really enjoyable activity and I got very fit. And then I, I, I used to row as a schoolboy and then I went back to sculling and I sculled in the national championships for the, I think it was the under 60s and I won. And that was really great fun, but you can't, that's not enough in life. You just, for some people it might be, but it's a bit obsessive. So I got back into business. So what gets me back, gets me out of bed in the mornings at the moment is the fact I'm back in business and I'm enjoying it. I think you have to keep balancing here and you can allow it to become overwhelming. And, you know, mm. what I'm doing at the moment, we've descri described, you can wake up in the morning and it can almost be so overwhelming you can't get out of bed, you know, not quite because I'm not that personality. Um, and you've got to stand back and say, actually, you know, I've had a great life. I'm doing great things. I'm working with really interesting people. And that's the kind of thing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Um, just quickly as well, before we get on to those like questions, Richard, your own learning over the years what have been the most effective methods that you've gone about your own learning? Because you talked about it before. If the hunger to learn and keep improving is there, then then careers can be very exciting places and, and, and places of great enjoyment and fulfillment. What, what, what have you found to be your most effective way of learning over the years and your own self-development? I think even when I was in, well, I, for example, I was, when I was working for PwC, I was commuting to Dagenham. And I, would, I knew that I was too biased. So I, was, I did an A-level in, in business studies on the train because I had all that time. So because I could see there was an opportunity to broaden. And I think being able to stand back and say, what, what, what other skills do I need? What communication skills or technical skills or whatever is, is, is what it's about, being mm. strategic about, about where you're going. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, I can't say it's ever something that I've ever done very well myself, to be honest with you. And, and, and being able to have the time to be able to step back and – yeah, go, where am I now and where do I want to get to? I think yeah. that's, a, I think that's a, a nice, nice point for us to finish before we get onto these light-hearted things that I've been promising for the you last for 15 minutes. But uh, like all these things, there's been too much interesting stuff to cover, Richard. So let's get to it. And I don't know if there's, um, if there's been a book, podcast, or a film that you would recommend for listeners that you take a long-lasting learns from at all. So as I disclosed, doing a business studies A-level on the, on the train, you know, I'm a bit of a business book nerd. I think the best, I mean, I, as I said, in the 80s, I was in California. I lived through that Steve Jobs uh, activity. And I think the Walter Isaacson book is exceptional about, um, it's a summary of personality, it's a summary of politics, and it's a summary of innovation. I just thought it was a really good read. But then I lived it. But I think anybody would find, you know, the things they did about building, they knew they wanted to have um, uh, glass screens, but those screens had to be really tough. So they persuaded somebody to build a factory to make the glass screens. That kind of stuff is really, you know, it's like, wow. Sounds the test of time as well, doesn't it? Wow. It yeah, revolutionised yeah, yeah. it, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. at that time, it's Blackberries. They knew they had seen what, this, what needed to be there, but they knew the screens had to be really good. But that's just one example. Mm. But the whole learning about his history and what he was, I think it's a really good read. I haven't read it. 
I've got a bit of a stack <laughs> off the back of this, of the, all these recommendations from these podcasts. I need to find a way to inhale more on my bike somehow because, um, yeah, Audible doesn't quite seem to be cutting the mustard. But that's another one that's going to go on the Christmas list. At least we're getting to that point where I can uh, have a stocking filler request from my wife. So that'll be um, that'll be enjoyable. And then the the the, the, the final question, Richard. What? It doesn't seem that long ago, but in lots of ways it does seem like a long time ago. Not being able to go to your favourite pub or your favourite restaurant and do the things that make a, an unwinding, strategic, focused afternoon away from the office, away from the, the detail, some valuable time. I think it's a nice thing to share where people, they've got a half a, half a day in an afternoon to be able to sit and reflect and think about what's next. Where's that happy place that you choose to spend it yourself, Richard? The Delaunay for breakfast. This sounds very <laughs> elite, doesn't it? But the Delaunay. You can tell our offices are close together because the Delaunay is <laughs> a favourite of mine as well. That's for um, sure. I think we the Somerset House Terrace in the summer is a really good one. You know, it's in the sun. It's not well known. It's now going to be well known, we of course. Yeah, is <laughs> a really good one. Um, in the evening, Bar Elba. It's a rooftop just near Waterloo. Yeah. Um, I'm a bit old for it, really, aren't I? I think, but I, but it's the one I really, you know, it's just nice being up there, and it's just a bit of fun. It's got a good vibe. It's very open plan. The tunes are often on. It's one of those on a hot day. I, I'd agree with you. I think it's a lovely spot to hang out. So uh, I like these are places that you can actually go to for a change. Some people have given me some rather more far flung places. So yeah, yeah some yeah. good spots there, Richard. Um, I know that I've taken away a number of things for today. I know there'll be people that listen that have done um, as well, Richard. So thanks very much for coming in and sharing your leadership learns with us today. If you've enjoyed the episode, please give a, st- a five-star rating on the podcast provider of your choice. And Richard, thanks again for coming on. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Pete. Thank Goodbye. you very much.